scripture lesson this morning is Genesis chapter 42. When Jacob saw that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else... By the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that jo Joseph understood them. For there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? 
When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word. We pray that you would direct us in it now by your Holy Spirit, that the truth would come powerfully to us, that you would direct our faith and that you would meet us in our weakness. And Lord, we confess we believe. Please help our unbelief. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a while since we've read anything about Jacob or about Joseph's brothers. The focus has been on Joseph, and for good reason. He plays a vitally important role in the history of Israel and in the story of God's redemption of his people. In the context of the book of Genesis, he's the Savior, he's the Redeemer. And as we've noted, Joseph's gone through a number of death and resurrection experiences. But at last, in chapter 41, he's resurrected from the prison and ascends to his position of rule over Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So when did we last hear from Jacob? Well, back in chapter 37. What about Reuben or Joseph's other brothers? Also back in chapter 37. A lot has happened since chapter 37. Joseph's life has changed drastically. He's gone from his father's right-hand man to betrayed and nearly killed by his brothers to being sold into slavery and obtaining a high place in Potiphar's house, then suffering false execution, false accusations from, from Potiphar's wife to being imprisoned, to being forgotten. Until at last, Joseph is remembered and exalted over all of Egypt. But what about the brothers? We don't know anything about them. We skipped chapter 38 and the episode of Judah and Tamar. But the events of their lives for the past 22 years really aren't given to us. What kind of state are they in? In what ways have they matured? Now, there are some clues for us in the text. And from a literary standpoint, you get the sense that they haven't really changed at all. Maybe have even gotten worse. In chapter 37, the brothers were unified in their disdain for Joseph. Here in chapter 42, there seems to be a measure of infighting and disunity. The phrase that Jacob speaks, why do you look at one another, could also mean that they're facing one another in 
an adversarial fashion or arguing with one another. Or if we take it in the sense that they're just looking at one another, not sure what to do, and it takes Jacob to motivate them uh, to get them going, what might that indicate? That the brothers are lacking in discernment. That they're somehow impotent to proactively solve the problem of not having any food. Verse 1 literally states that Jacob saw that there was grain for sale in Egypt. He had the power to discern, to make a right judgment about what to do. Apparently his sons did not. Why are the sons so seemingly impotent? Could it be because of the guilt that they're carrying around with them concerning what they did to Joseph? We know it's on their minds, even as verse 21 tells us, by their own confession. Understand, the man who is guilty has a hard time working. He cannot work. Sin leads to guilt. Guilt leads to impotence. The guilty man finds it's very difficult to act. He, he's bound up on the inside, having a constant nagging, internal turmoil that renders him incapable of acting decisively. But Jacob doesn't quite seem to be the man that we knew back some chapters ago either. What seems to be controlling him to some measure? Fear. Verse 4. Benjamin didn't go to Egypt because Jacob feared that harm might come to his youngest son. And what comes in this chapter and those that follow are tests of these areas of guilt and fear for Jacob and his sons. God is going to, to press his covenant people on these very things. He brings them under judgment in order to test them. Another theme that begins to emerge here is how God's covenant people will react to the word, the gospel that comes to them in this chapter. In chapter 41, the Egyptians, the Gentiles, believed and were converted. Now it's time to see what happens to God's people when his revelation comes to them through Joseph, his spokesman. In many respects, the primary theme, what the story is, is about life and death. Verse 2, Jacob tells his sons to go buy grain in Egypt that we may live and not die. In verses 14 and 16, Joseph qualifies statements with the phrase, by the life of Pharaoh. Then in verse 18, which is basically the center of the text, he declares, do this and you will live. And in verse 20, you shall not die. And then at the end of the chapter in verse 38, we're back to Jacob. And what's he talking, what's he talking about? Death. For his brother is dead. You would bring my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol, to the grave. This theme of life and death carries over into chapter 43. There's a sense in which chapters 42 and where, where chapter 42 is the first part of the story, but we have to break it down to make it more, more manageable sections for study. Well, let's, let's walk through the text, highlighting some points as we go. In verses 1 through 5, we observe Jacob's son sent and journey to Egypt, except Benjamin. The famine has reached the land of Canaan, and Jacob and his family need food. He sends his ten sons to Egypt to buy grain. And it's important for them to buy the grain so that they won't be beholden to the Egyptians. Recall how Abraham refused the plot of land, insisted on buying it to bury Sarah. Likewise, Jacob refused gifts from Laban. He knows how things work, and so he wants to be sure not to be beholden to the Egyptians. And this helps to explain his reaction later in the chapter, along with his sons, that by not having paid for the grain, they are indebted to Egypt. 
And while the brothers are sent so that they might live and not die, as we'll see, they go to Egypt in order to die, in order to undergo a necessary experience of death. Notice in verse 3 that Jacob's sons are referred to as Joseph's brothers. See, that sets up the story for what follows and also rightly reminds us of chapter 37. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery as Joseph went down to Egypt. So now it's their turn to go down to Egypt where, where they'll be lied about and imprisoned. See, as, as we'll go and see, Joseph creates an experience for his brothers that parallels his own. But Benjamin doesn't make the trip. He's kept back. Jacob doesn't trust the ten with his youngest son. He's suspicious of them and doesn't want Benjamin to come to harm, whether as a res- direct result of their actions or by their negligence. And then note the information given in verse 5. The sons of Israel. Although hardly unified in, their first, in the first four verses, Jacob's sons are identified by his national name. They come along, they, they come as a clan along with other peoples to buy bread. Well, next in verses 6 to 14, we observe Jacob's, uh, sorry, Joseph's harsh treatment of his brothers when they come to Egypt. Apparently, Joseph was directly involved in the distribution of the grain and had to be spoken to directly for requests from outside visitors. Joseph was the governor, the, the sultan over the land. And when Joseph's brothers came before him, they bowed down with their faces to the ground before him. And then notice what we learn in verses 7 and 8. Joseph saw his brothers. He makes right judgment with wisdom and discernment and recognized them. Now, the word recognize is the same word of the verb used in chapter 37 when Joseph's torn garment was presented to Jacob by the brothers and also in chapter 38 when Judah's seal was presented to Judah by Tamar. Joseph's harsh language and rough language to them would have taken them off guard, kept them off balance, and made it that much more difficult for them to recognize him. And remember, Joseph looks 100% Egyptian. Clean-shaven head, um, Egyptian clothing. He probably wore black around his eyes that you've seen in pictures or in movies. And by treating his brothers this way, what's he doing? Well, he's using a subtle form of righteous deception. He's not being uh, vindictive here. He's... He's not just taking out some old pent-up anger on them. No, he's deceiving them in order to move them to repentance. That's what Rebecca did for Isaac. That's what Tamar did for Judah. And that's what Joseph is doing here. Similarly, Nathan did the same to David in 2 Samuel 12. And even Jesus employed this tactic for a similar purpose with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus purposely hid his identity from them until the right moment in order for them to understand the truth about him. And then know what we're told in verse 9. Joseph remembered the dreams that he dreamed. What dreams? About his brothers bowing down before him, which they just did. And what function did those dreams serve? They were God's revelation, God's word to his people. That being the case, Joseph's actions that follow are in accord with that word, with what God had foretold and the purposes he's bringing about. Joseph is is immediately crafting a way to redeem the situation, to bring about the repentance of his brothers. And so he comes up with this plan of treatment, of testing, that parallels his own, as we noted already. 
And, and, and just try to get a sense of the scene here. His, his brothers are in line or among all these other caravans of foreigners. And no one else gets accused as they do. So they're, they're really being put on the spot. You know, talk about nerve-wracking and stressful. And then and Joseph accuses them of being spies, which he does multiple times. Uh, that word is used seven times total throughout the chapter. And what have they come to do? Spy out the nakedness of the land. What's that mean? Well, nakedness has to do with weakness in some respect. It's to be exposed. It's to be stripped of your garments of authority or power. You'll recall back in Genesis 9, Noah had laid aside the garments of his authority in his tent. He was naked in the confines of his tent, which was perfectly acceptable. And Ham came in and tried to seize those garments and usurp Noah's rule. Well, Joseph's accusation is similar. He's saying they're looking to overthrow Egypt. It's decimated by the famine. It's in a weakened and exposed state. And they've come to see how they can seize the land. Of course, they protest their innocence and honesty. But in a sense, they really are spies and are dishonest, aren't they? Back in chapter 37, although they didn't spy on Joseph, they did see him from afar. And then what do they do? Well, they took advantage of his weakness. They stripped him of his garment of authority, his royal tunic. They made him naked and then lied to their father about what had happened. Again, there are all of these parallels back to chapter 37 that emerge upon closer examination of the text. In verse 13, the brothers make mention of the fact that there's a younger brother at home, which may be completely new information to Joseph. It's very possible that Benjamin wasn't born by the time Joseph was sold into slavery. And now Joseph comes to find out that he has a younger full brother. And then with that, what, and then with that information, Joseph is basically going to put Benjamin in the same position he was placed in. He's going to test his brothers in almost precisely the same manner in which they sinned against him. Will they treat Benjamin the same way? So far, they haven't. In verse 14, Joseph repeats his accusation, literally calling them spying ones. They're people characterized by spying, characterized by seeking to exploit the weakness of others, even murderous by nature. Well, this brings us to the central point, portion of the text where Joseph's brothers are tested, verses 15 to 20, and verse 17 and the first part of verse 18 are at the center. In verse 15, Joseph openly states they'll be tested, swearing by the life of Pharaoh. Joseph continues to convincingly play his Egyptian role. And then Joseph sets out the parameters of the test in verse 16. One of the brothers has to go back to get the brother at home while the rest remain in Egypt. Symbolically, this means one will live and the rest will die. And Joseph's oath, as Pharaoh lives, is a picture of the old order of things, a picture of things when Pharaoh ruled and not Elohim, not God. Perhaps we can even make the case that this reflects how a pagan society would have worked, a society governed by sin, nine put to death while one is spared, given life. And so Joseph declares, as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. Meaning, this is what you are in your sin, under the old order, acting as the world operates before salvation. You are spies who attack and lie. Which brings us to the theological center of the text in verse 17, and again the first part of verse 18. And he put them all together in custody for three days. 
The word translated custody is the same word used in chapter 40, verses 3, 4, and 7, of Joseph being in the prison house. Joseph is putting them through what he went through. And surely you notice the time period, three days. The brothers come under judgment and suffer death for three days. Then verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. The brothers are given an opportunity for new life. They will live. And Joseph doesn't couch his statement according to Pharaoh, but according to God, Elohim. He reveals to the brothers that he's a God-fearer. Their opportunity for life comes to them according to God's economy for the world and not the sinful pagan one. What does that new situation entail? In verse 19, one dies so that all of the others may live. Only one brother will now be kept behind while all the others go free. If the brothers obey God's representative, if they obey the word that now comes to them through Joseph, then they will live and not die. And be sure to notice what's happening. The one brother who stays behind, who it, that ends up being Simeon. He's put in the same position that Joseph was 20 plus years earlier. Simeon is imprisoned. He's put into a pit. What are the brothers going to do? Are they going to leave him there? Abandon him there? As they did Joseph. Also, Joseph knows how long the famine will last. The brothers don't. Joseph knows that they'll have to come back for more grain. Otherwise, they'll die. They'll have to bring Benjamin, the youngest, back. But even more, notice the graciousness of this second circumstance. By sending nine brothers back, they're able to take more grain to their households. Joseph's mercy is seen here as well. But not just Joseph's mercy, but God's mercy. God's way of doing things is pictured here. And it's different from the usual way the world operates and the world and its powers operate. So the brothers agree to the plan and act accordingly. And then in verses 21 to 25, we see Joseph's test taking effect and producing some of the desired results. As the brothers consider what's happening to them, what is set before them, their guilt concerning Joseph is the first thing that comes to their minds. And they say as much. And that's no small detail in verse 21. Because that helps us to understand the theology of the preceding verses and what's going on here. In verse 21, we learn that Joseph cried out from the pit that he begged to be set free, but they didn't listen to him. They acted harshly toward him. And they equate their circumstance with that. They see the parallels. Joseph's righteous deception is working. The word for listen or hear, Shema, is used three times in verses 21 to 23. They did not hear Joseph's cries. They did not hear Reuben. And they did not know that Joseph heard them. The fact that Joseph used an interpreter further gave the impression that he was 100% Egyptian. But of course, he understood everything they were saying. And it caused him to turn away from them and weep. Joseph learned something new about Reuben. That he tried to save him. Remember, Reuben was the firstborn of Leah. And of all the brothers, he was powerless to save Joseph. And this picks up on the theme of the firstborn theology of the Bible as in Adam that all he brought was death and punishment and it takes a secondborn to redeem. Notice who Joseph keeps. Simeon, Leah's secondborn son. That's appropriate theologically. The secondborn, the younger brother who acts as the savior. 
but also parallels the fact that Benjamin is Rachel's secondborn. The brothers may very well have picked up on this parallel as well, making them all the more afraid. Simeon the secondborn is taken as Benjamin the secondborn is required. Symbolically, both secondborns are going to be required for the others to live. But Joseph is beginning to see that God is working in their hearts and their redemption is in its first phase. They're coming under conviction for their sin. And note that Joseph made a show of taking Simeon from them and binding them before their eyes. You know, they're, they're having to come to grips with the fact that their sin is causing pain for others, that their sin has consequences. Perhaps they can all see themselves in Simeon, can see that they deserve to be bound and thrown into prison, to be where he is, but this gracious ruler is letting them go and Simeon is taking their place. Well, Joseph orders their bags filled with grain, their money returned, and provisions given for their journey, and it was done. And that brings us to the last section in verses 26 to 38, as the nine brothers journey back to Jacob and give their report. Of course, they stop along the way. One of them finds their money in his sack of grain, tells the other brothers, and notice what it says. They turn trembling to one another, saying, What is it that God has done to us? Their hearts are being softened. They see God's hand in their circumstances, and they're also coming to grips with the fact that the powerful Egyptian governor they dealt with, who fears God, has done this. And now they'll have a significant amount of time to think about it. So they arrived back in Canaan and told their father, Jacob, all that had happened, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. It's no accident that Joseph is the man, the Lord of the land. They refer to Joseph two times in this way. In the theology of the book of Genesis, um, he's a new Adam, a true Adam who has taken dominion. They also recount to Jacob the terms for their return to Egypt and that Benjamin has to go back. If they do, they'll be able to trade freely in the land. But then in verse 35, they all empty their sacks and all find their silver And when they and their father saw the silver, they were greatly afraid. Now they are all gripped by fear. Now Jacob is no longer the only one who is afraid. And notice the accusation he levels against them. You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. As mentioned before, Jacob suspects that his sons had something to do with Joseph's death. He's no dummy. Now he's lost Simeon and his sons come home with more silver. Perhaps he suspects that they sold Simeon to this Egyptian ruler. But he's also being asked to give up the son of his right hand, the son who is the prince, the son of his beloved queen. And Jacob recognizes that the sins of his sons come back upon him. He blames them. He, they've done this to him and the accusation is strong. You have bereaved me of my children. He's saying, you've made me childless, which also implies that he's essentially disowning the other nine. The rift between Jacob and his sons appears to be complete. Israel is no more. In verse 37, Reuben, the firstborn, attempts to offer a solution, but he's powerless. He's impotent. What kind of offer is he making? Father, if I don't bring back Benjamin, then you can kill two of your grandsons. What kind of answer is that? Well, it's none. It's feeble. It seems magnanimous, I guess, but really it's foolish. Perhaps we can even argue that it's pagan. He was powerless to save Joseph. 
Now he's powerless to protect Benjamin. And given the fact that Reuben has likely sinned with Bilhah at this point, Jacob naturally doesn't trust him. Reuben the firstborn is not acting with wisdom here, but Joseph the firstborn is, and his intricate wisdom is taking effect. And notice Jacob's response to this offer in verse 38. My son, Benjamin, is the only son left since he's disowned the rest. My son. That's, Benjamin's the only one left. Benjamin, as the son of his favored wife, has priority of place. His brother is dead. Jacob doesn't refer to Joseph as Reuben's brother. The brothers are disowned. Your journey, you will be going back, but Benjamin won't be going with you. You're trying to drive me straight into the grave, into Sheol. And this this chapter ends on a depressing note, doesn't it? Yes, it ends on a note of fear and despair and death. And we have to keep reading in order to find out what happens. But we know that God is at work in the hearts of the sons of Jacob. His word has come to them through Joseph, and it's having its effect upon them. So now let's ask ourselves how God's word, how Genesis 42 might affect us. What principles might come to bear upon our lives? Well, first, let us consider again the effects of guilt and resolve not to be governed by it. 22 years is a long time to be carrying around unconfessed sin and guilt. But that's what the brothers did. Up to this point, they haven't come clean, and that guilt affected them profoundly. Is there any unconfessed sin in your life? Is there any guilt that you're carrying around with you that needs to be dealt with? Sin and guilt not only have personal ramifications, but social ramifications too. You don't sin in a vacuum. Other people are affected by your sin, most immediately your spouse and children. If you're feeling guilty about something, and it isn't false guilt, then confess it and be done with it and no longer let it govern or control your life. If you do, you will be impotent in life, or at the very least you won't be as effective as you might be otherwise. And once you've confessed your sin and guilt, then believe by faith that it's forgiven in Christ. Don't hold on to it as some type of super spirituality, as though you're more holy than the next person because you feel so guilty. Now that's to demean what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Forgiveness for sin is also forgiveness for the guilt of the sin. Guilt often comes about as a result of not living up to a standard whether a real one, such as found in God's Word, or a perceived one that you've created in your mind, which may be more strenuous than what God's Word demands. But despite that, it's for faith to take to heart the good news, even as the gospel proclaims. You're not guilty because of the Son of God. The secondborn died for you, took your place. He died to give you new life, a life free from the guilt of sin. That's how sin and guilt are dealt with. God is gracious and merciful. And it's for your faith to believe it and embrace it and not act as though he operates according to worldly designs for things. And in light of, of, of this text, neither should we be a people governed by fear. Jacob is afraid. The brothers are afraid. You and I are afraid. Probably more than we should be. You know, we live in a culture that it, that excites and promotes fear. 
We're encouraged to be afraid of disease or the government or food or invading armies or whatever next trend the news cycle foists upon society in order to drive viewership, raise ratings, make money off of advertising, etc. We're to be afraid if we don't do this for our children. We're to be afraid if we do this for our children. And the list goes on and on. And often you know what I'm talking about. It doesn't take much to get there, whether on social media, a news site, or wherever. Now, understand that I'm not saying that there aren't times to be legitimately afraid. But if the air you breathe on a daily basis is one of fear, and it paralyzes you from doing things, or if you are constantly hesitant because of fear, then you may need to consider whether you're being governed by fear or faith. And you may need to just cut out, you know, looking at the news all the time. Again, what's their point? The point is to gin up fear. Um, you know, you, and you need to be faithful in your fear. You know, admit your fear, take it to the Lord in prayer, and renew yourself in Him and His protective care, and then be willing to act, trusting Him. You know, giving yourself, your spouse, your children, and loved ones into His protective care. And one of my favorite prayers from the Book of Common Prayers, an evening prayer. It's a, pray, a prayer that we pray as a family typically on Sunday night. And it goes like this. Lighten our darkness, we beseech thee, O Lord, and by thy great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of thy only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now notice that the prayer recognizes perils and dangers. Things that we might be afraid of. But it places them in the context of prayer beseeching the mercy and defense of God. Jacob doesn't seem to be the man he once was. And so the Lord is going to test him at the very point of his greatest fear. And perhaps the Lord is testing you, however subtly, however mercifully, perhaps in small ways, and is saying, you need to trust me. I can be trusted with your circumstances. I can be trusted with your children. They belong first to me anyway. Do not fear. I think mention of this has been made before, but according to one source, the most frequent command in the Bible is, do not fear. Don't be afraid. Fear is an effect, a consequence of the fall. You know, where did God find Adam and Eve? Hiding in the bushes. Why? Because they were afraid. They were guilty and ashamed. Your Heavenly Father is well acquainted with your fear. He's been dealing with the fears of His servants, well, since arguably the seventh day of the world's existence. And so He's not being heavy-handed when He says, don't be afraid. No, He's encouraging you to trust Him. And while I don't want anyone unnecessarily beating himself or herself up about this, if this is a struggle that you acutely know. Neither do I want you to fail to examine yourself in your heart and consider whether your thoughts and actions are directed more by fear than faith. And just as the answer for your guilt is a look unto Jesus, so it's the case for your fears. Now, even as we've sung plenty of times in the past, arise, my soul, arise, shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. What command do we find coming from the lips of angels 
Jesus and others after the resurrection. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. And this is what our hearts and souls really want to hear, and yet we have such difficulty obeying this command. But the resurrection itself is an implicit call for you not to be afraid. Because as one scholar observes, the God who made the world is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And He calls you now to follow Him. And believing in this God means believing that it is going to be all right. And this belief is ultimately incompatible with fear. As John says in his letter, perfect love casts out fear. And the resurrection is the revelation of perfect love, God's perfect love for us. That's why though we may at any stage in our lives grasp the truth that God raised Jesus from the dead, it takes us all our life long to let that belief soak through and permeate the rest of our thinking, feeling, and worrying lives. Now, ironically, if that's the right way to say it, living by faith can be scary. And so we need lots of practice to live by faith. And don't be surprised if God brings you to the end of your own resources so that you must rely upon Him, the God who raises the dead, all the more. You see, if God can raise the dead and He has raised His Son, Jesus, to directly deal with our guilt and fear, has redeemed our immortal souls from eternal punishment, then he can be trusted with every lesser issue, task, or challenge with which we're presented. Don't be afraid. This God can be trusted. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank you for your word. And indeed, we ask again, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. And so direct us to be a people who are all the more faithful, who rightly deal with our fear and who move forward in the life you've called us to live. May we be those who readily confess our sins and confess our guilt and repent of our sins and move forward in the joy of repentance and new life that has come through Christ our Savior and King, in whose name we pray. Amen.